course of that sessions and uh, some of you want to leave and you know that I'm writing down your names at this point. Uh, but Andrew next door is uh, teaching on helping the hurting and Kirsten is teaching on breaking strongholds for women in the cafe. So please, yes, I am noting who's leaving. Actually, my own wife and daughter are leaving. So feel free to leave as we sing one last chorus. Thanks. Faithful remnant, thank you. No, I would probably go and listen to them too. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 4. And if you were here last week, I mentioned that I can't wait for my resurrected body because there's a couple boxes that God did not check, like tall, dark, handsome. I just want you to know what kind of people I work with. Anonymous, but I know it's one of my co-workers. Resurrection instruction sheet. Boxes, tall, at least 6'2", dark, handsome, Clark Gable. So probably an older co-worker. <laughs> Present this folder to your undertaker at the time you plan your funeral. Instruct him to place it on your casket or urn so that you may have all your requests in hand at the time of your resurrection. I bet this person went to one of the other sessions as well. <laughs> Just what I'm thinking. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, I thank you for Andrew as he teaches on helping those who are hurting. I thank you for Kirsten as she teaches on overcoming strongholds to some of her fellow sisters in Christ. I think of Sam, who's doing a breakout session in Weston right now as well. And we're thankful for the excellence of teaching of these three and a number of others that I work with. And we pray, Father, that each of us in whatever session we're in would be impacted by truth, your truth, by your inspired and errant word. Help us as fallen, frail, finite expositors to rightly divide your infinite inerrant, inspired word. And may we be changed by it. 
We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. I love history. I love archaeology. I love culture. If you were to go anywhere with the Heinz family, the likelihood that you would end up in a cultural site or in a museum is very high. We have been to cultural sites and museums just about everywhere we go. This was a value that my parents brought into my sisters and my life, and it's one that we have attempted to bring into our families' lives as well. Perhaps the greatest archaeological site that Betty Ann and I have ever had the privilege of touring, at least in terms of immensity of size, is Pompeii in Italy. Pompeii, the actual ruins, is larger and greater than any ruins I have seen anywhere on the, the planet or on the earth, in the limited places I have gone. It is immense. Now, you probably know something about Pompeii. You know that it is located next to Mount Vesuvius, a mountain volcano 4,200 feet high. You may know it is the only active volcano in Europe today, although it has not erupted in 79 years, not since 1944, and actually shows absolutely no signs of erupting anytime in the near future. You may know that since 8079, the most famous volcanic eruption on our planet, it has erupted no less than three dozen times. You may know that when it erupted, in 79 AD, four places, Herculean, Pompeii, and two others, were utterly destroyed so that somewhere between 16,000 and 20,000 individuals lost their lives almost instantaneously. Maybe you've seen some of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in Hollywood. Maybe you've seen it on a show. Maybe you've seen it on a movie. If so, the chances are very good you've seen something that did not occur. No lava ever hit Pompeii. None. That's not the destruction of Pompeii. What destroyed Pompeii was gases, pumice, and ashes. That's what destroyed Pompeii. In 79 AD, we have a pyroclastic eruption, which means that things did come out of Mount Vesuvius. Ashes and pumice went between 50,000 and 100,000 feet in the air. And that shifted over to Herculean in Pompeii and dropped nine feet, two inches of compacted ash and pumice, that's what destroyed Pompeii. So if you've been to Pompeii, you know that it is completely intact. In fact, on the walls, there is still paint. On the walls, there is still artwork. Lots of things that you would expect to have been destroyed have not been destroyed because lava never hit it. What did hit it from time to time were immense rocks that came out of Mount Vesuvius traveled at 430 miles per hour, rocks the size of school buses, that did pound into parts of Pompeii. But for the most part, 
it is a city intact. We have several eyewitnesses. We have Pliny the Older, who actually launched from the Bay of Naples a number of ships in the vain hope of rescuing somebody from Herculean or Pompeii. It was a vain attempt. We have Pliny the Younger, who wrote two letters to the historian Tacitus, and it is written in his books, The Annals, all about what happened. So we know that the eruption was for 48 hours. The first 24 hours were boulders, and the last 24 hours was the pumice that covered, the ashes that covered the city. And although somebody would have died of asphyxiation instantaneously from that, it is not likely that anyone was still alive. What we know happened is this. Gas has seeped up from the ground. Gas is at a temperature of 1,830 degrees, instantaneously killing between 16 and 20,000 people. That's the city of Pompeii. We also know this. They had lots of warnings. There had been an earthquake in AD 62. There had been an earthquake in AD 64. Pliny the Younger, recorded in Tacitus's Annals, tells us that it was a daily occurrence that the ground shook. In fact, Pliny the Younger said that the shaking of the ground was so great and so often that people now ignored it. They had experienced the gases of 1,830 degrees. It had erupted out in fields, killing animals and people. But they ignored those warning signs. Two weeks before the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, a plume of smoke started to rise outside and up through Mount Vesuvius. You'd think that would have gotten their attention. It had not been there, and it had now started to calm, and the ground was shaking, and gases were being emitted, animals were dying, and people did nothing. They did nothing. And so 16,000 to 20,000 people who did not have to die, died. What happened? They ignored the warning signs. And as you and I continue our study through 1 Thessalonians, we are again at a passage of the end times. But the end time passages in Scripture are not given that we become prognosticators. They are not given so that my end time chart is superior to your end time chart. The end time passages are given as warnings, as rumblings, so that we are ready that we are alert, that we know that at any imminent, which means any moment, it doesn't mean instant, it means at any moment, Christ will return and he will find us ready. That's what the end time passages are about. Jesus says, be alert. He says, be like the virgins who have oil in their lamp and they can trim their lamp when the bridegroom Christ comes. Don't be like those who do not have oil, who have to go out and try and scavenger it up. It won't work. Be ready. Be alert. That's what the end time passages are all about. And so there are signs. There's lots of signs. But again, 
Not that we become prognosticators. Not that we read the daily news as though it's tea leaves telling us how soon Christ will be returning. The warning signs are warnings to us as Christ followers. Be ready. Be alert. Be on point. Be salt. Be light. Be ready for Christ's return. Listen to the warning in Matthew 24, 3 to 8, and then 30, verse 36. And he, Matthew 24, 3, and he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, and disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. But then the warning in verse 36. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son on earth, but only my Father. In other words, these events, these signs are not so that you and I can say, this is when Christ is going to return, or that is the moment he will return. It's not for that. It's so that you and I will live a life on point, on focus, ready so that when Christ returns, we may be found doing the things that Christ desires, that we will be found in fellowship, that we will be found reading the word, that we will be found as prayer warriors, that we will be found sharing salvation by faith in Christ alone, that we will be living our lives not in wasteful ways, but we will be living them that God's kingdom will be advanced. With this short introduction, maybe not so short, let me pick up in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 4. You should have gone to the other sessions. They're only going to preach like a half hour. I'm going on and on and on. Actually, I got to go preach in Weston in a moment, so I can't. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, the times is the word chronos, from which we get the word chronology. These things aren't given to us that we might find a chronology. Now concerning the chronologies and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Verse 1 simply reiterates that prognosticating the time of Christ's return is not something we ought to be engaged in. Listen to what Jesus said just prior to ascending into heaven in Acts 1, 6 and 7. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That is, is this now the time? Are we in the end times? 
He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons. Kairos and Kronos. It's not for you to have chronologies or dates. Those are the two words he uses. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. That's not the purpose. You remember our setting. Paul has been up in Turkey. He's coming down south and west from the Aegean Sea. He's growing on the coastline. He's about halfway down the Aegean Sea. He's in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, he begins to plant a church. He begins to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But as has been typical of this missionary journey, individuals are following him. We often call them Judaizers. The book of Galatians is written all about it. And these Judaizers are essentially saying, salvation is by faith in Christ plus works, plus kosher kitchens, plus the 613 Levitical laws, plus circumcision. In other words, put your faith in works by you rather than the single work of Christ. And so these Judaizers are following Paul. He's only been there three weeks. They stir up the crowds and Paul needs to escape by darkness or he will be put to death. So he's planted a church. He's discipled them for only three weeks and he needs to go. And clearly while he was there, he talked a little bit about the end times. And he told them, he told us, don't place your faith in those who say dates. Place your faith in living for the Lord. Be alert, be ready, because he's coming imminently. He's coming at any moment. In fact, he's coming like a thief in the night. Now, when you and I come to end time passages, outside the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, or outside of Revelation 6 to 22, other passages speak of the end times in little bursts. Here we got four verses, a little burst. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, we had a, a little burst. We have little bursts, and, and none of them attempt to give us all the events in sequence so that you and I may have the best graph. They don't attempt to do that. What is the purpose of these little bursts? They're the purpose of the author. In this case, the purpose is not to give us every end time event. It's to say, there's one event you need to be worried about. It's the return of Christ. Be ready. Now, if I were an amillennialist, I'm not. But if I were an amillennialist, this would be my text. Why? Because in this text, he essentially mentions two events. The return of Christ and then the day of the Lord, the judgment. He leaves out Revelation 6 all the way to 20. Do you notice that? He leaves them all out. Revelation 6 to 18 is what we call the great tribulation. That's the seven seals, the seven bowls, the seven trumpets. None of it's mentioned. He leaves out Revelation 20, 1 to 7 about the millennial kingdom when Christ will come down at the end of the tribulation, he will reign victoriously, physically on earth for a thousand years. That 1,007 years is not in this text. This is shorthand. Why? Because those 1,007 years 
are not what Paul's concerned with. He's concerned with the church age. He's concerned with you and me. He's concerned that life happens. And when life happens, our view of the return of Christ becomes dim. He's concerned that I will focus more on my work than the kingdom. He's concerned that I will focus more on my family than the kingdom. Those are important things to focus on, but there's something preeminent, and that's the kingdom. He's concerned that the busyness of life will push out the things of the kingdom, that I won't be a prayer warrior, that I won't be involved in scripture, that I won't be sharing the gospel, that I won't be on point. He's concerned that the busyness of life will cause me not to be alert, not to be awake, to be like the virgins who don't have the oil. That's his concern. So he leaves out 1,007 years. He leaves out the great tribulation. He leaves out the millennial kingdom because that's not his point. This is shorthand. He's talking to the church. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. He's saying, be alert, be ready. Because Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And so he talks about the return of Christ. And then he talks about the great and awful day of the Lord. That's a phrase that you who are steeped in the Old Testament, you know that phrase well, the great and terrible, awful day of the Lord. Joel puts it this way in Joel 2.31, which is cited in Acts 2.20, The sun shall turn to darkness, the moon into blood before the great and terrible, or the ESV, the awesome, the NIV, the dreadful day of the Lord come. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is is a terrible day for the unbeliever. What we have often in the Old Testament are historical events that are like the day of the Lord. They're harbingers. They're little pictures. They're parables that are historically conditioned. And God says that that's similar to what will occur in the day of the Lord. And so we have Isaiah. And Isaiah is writing about the destruction of Israel by Babylon. And he calls it a day of the Lord type event. Let me read Isaiah 13, 6 to 9. Wail. For the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. Behold, the day of the Lord. It doesn't sound much like a party to me. I think of the abuse of Pharaoh Necho over Judah and the destruction that will come upon them. It's a harbinger, a picture. And Jeremiah calls it the day of the Lord. Jeremiah 46.10. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated, which means satisfied, and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. And I say, okay, great. Go after Babylon. Go after Egypt. Just leave us alone. 
But then there's Joel. And Joel is particularly upset with pastors and priests and ministers. He's particularly upset with those who proclaim the word of the Lord, who have duplicitous lives, who claim one thing on Sunday and live another thing. He's concerned with with those who sit regularly in a congregation who hear the word of the Lord and it kind of bounces off like Teflon and doesn't impact and transform. He's concerned with us. Joel 1, 13. Put on sackcloth, Jeff. Lament, Jeff. O priest, wail. O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth. O ministers of my God. Because grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. This is the terrible and awful day of the Lord. And the text tells us that this day is going to come like a thief. In the night. Now I'm a walking issue. I've got lots of problems. Lots of things God needs to work in my life on. But one of the things that is not really an issue in my life is stealing. To my recollection, I think I stole exactly one time in my life. Maybe more, but I only remember once. I was either in kindergarten or the first grade. And this girl... I think I had a crush on her, but I'm not sure. This girl had some gum on her desk. And you know, if you have a crush on somebody, of course you want to share a stick of gum. I'm sure she wanted to give me one. So I took it and I chewed it and I was so overwhelmed with shame that I remember putting a quarter on her desk to pay for the stick of gum. So I don't know much about stealing But I know something about sneaking around at night. It says a thief in the night. I was 18 years old. It was in New York. It was the year that all of my friends were turning 18. And we had a tradition. We were all high school seniors. And our tradition was this. On the 18th birthday, we would go to somebody's house, whoever was turning 18, And we would toilet paper the entire yard at night. Now, what I'm about to tell you is not because I'm proud of it. I'm just going to tell you the truth of what we did. Every house had gutters up front. And we would place a bottle of 151 Bacardi rum. And then 18 ponies, 7 ounces, all lined up for one another. Drinking age was 18 in New York. Again, not telling you I'm proud of it. Just telling you what we did. And I remember one father, we had done this to a number of our friends, and one father said, over my dead body, you guys are not toilet papering my house. Gauntlet thrown down, challenge accepted. (laughs) Of course we're coming. That old geezer stayed up till 4.30 in the morning. 4.30! So at 4.45, double the normal toilet paper, we toilet papered that house. Now Jesus is not some dim-witted adolescence with more moxie than brains. 
But Jesus tells us he's coming. He's coming like a thief in the night. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we ready? He doesn't tell us these details so that we try and guess his appearance. So many have done that. I think of Hippoetus and Sectus Julius and Irenaeus. They all said January 1, the year 500. That's when Christ will return. I think of Pope Sylvester II. He said January 1, 1000. When that date passed, he said, oh, we need to add the time Jesus is on earth. So January 1, 1033. William Munster. If you know anything about William Munster, not Munster. William Munster, you know about the Reformation history. He was a charismatic Anabaptist reformational leader. He told us that Jesus was coming back in 1525. You think of Miller and the Millerites. They said Jesus was coming in 1830, in 1832, in 1834. The Millerites became the Seventh-day Adventists who eventually stopped giving us dates. You think of Charles Taz Russell. He's the founder of Jehovah Witnesses. He said 1874, 1875, 1877, the day of the Lord in 1914. He got them all wrong. You think of Herbert Armstrong of the Worldwide Church of God. He said 1975, Jesus is coming back. When Jesus didn't come back in 1975, he said, well, he'll come back before I die. He died in 1986. Harold Camping of Christian Family Radio wrote a book, 1994. When that date passed, he said, 1911, Jesus will return. Jerry Falwell wrote a book in 1999 saying the Antichrist is with us. And he said that Christ will return within 10 years. He's nine years past. Jeannie Dixon the psychic says in 2020 in her book, Bound for Glory, that's not the reason Scripture gives us for all of the signs. It's not so that we can guess the return of Christ. It's not so that we can make better graphs than someone else. The reason that we are given signs is so that we, like those in Pompeii, might see the signs and be ready. In Pompeii, they saw the signs and they ignored what came. And so I've got to ask myself, am I ready? I don't want to be found engaged in immorality when Jesus returns. I don't want to be found looking at pornography when Jesus returns. I don't want to be found filled with idolatry, having things more important than God. When Jesus returns, I don't want to be found being enveloped by the busyness of this world and forgetting that I am first and foremost a disciple of Christ and an ambassador as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the commission. And I don't want to be found not engaged in the commission that God has given me. And so he gives these signs, these harbingers, 
Not so I would pick a date. Not so I would make a graph. Not so I would ignore them. But every time I see the signs, every time I see them, I'm reminded Christ is coming back. He's coming back. And how will he find me? There's something called the rapture index. It's on a rapture site. It tells us that there are 44 indicators of Christ's return and gives little numbers for everyone. The day that I went on the site, I wouldn't recommend it to you. The indicators added up to 183. So what are these indicators? Anti-Semitism, inflation, drug use, pestilence, war, rumors of war. Actually, all the things are, are in scriptures, but they've added values to them. And again, that, that day it was 183. The lowest it had ever been was 54. And the highest it had ever been was 189. This was 183. Above 160, the category is fasten your seatbelt. So you've heard it here first. Fasten your seatbelt. But the point isn't to mock a sight. The point is to remind me he's coming back. He's coming back. And what will he find in my life? What will he find in your life? What will he find in his church? Are we ready? Are we alert? The only way you and I can be ready, first and foremost, is to come to the end of ourselves, to confess that our sin will separate us from a holy God and that we are sinners, and that he who knew no sin became sin for us that through him we might become the righteousness of God. And by faith we believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as a payment of our confessed and the power of God's Spirit repented of sin. And we receive him. And then we begin to live for him. And we're ready and we're alert and we're on point and on fire. You see, the day of the Lord is an awful and terrible day for the unbeliever, but not for the believer. Let me read one last passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. This is the day of the Lord for the believer. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the coronation moment. That's the moment when believers of all times will be gathered together for the marriage banquet of the Lamb, and we will celebrate for eternity, what Christ has done for us. But while we're here, while we're on this earth, God calls us to be alert, to be awake, to be on point, to be on fire, to take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I... I thank you for the many weeks we've been in 1 Thessalonians and still a little bit of time left to go and what you've shared with us, what you've taught us. And Father, we don't want to be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. And so we want to be reminded by the various events, by the various signs, not so we could argue about which end time view is superior to another, but so that we are alert, awake, on point, on fire, empowered by your Spirit. 
Use us, Father, as individuals, as families, as a church family. Use us to advance your kingdom, we ask. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.